As you have your Bibles open to Mark chapter 7, we'll dismiss the kindergarten and fifth graders. I'm sorry, kindergarten and first graders. We are really in the beginning parts of an eight-week series on the book of Mark. And that began back in chapter 6, verse 30, and runs through chapter 8, verse 30. And the main title, sort of the overarching theme of these um, passages has been sharpening our vision for Christ. I I use that illustration of a a refractor. You know, if you go to the ophthalmologist, he he puts that uh, fancy machine in front of you and he flips the lenses And he asks you to read the numbers. And what the lens does is it bends the light that's coming into your eye to a particular point so you can focus in on reading a line or reading a letter. And what we think or what I believe is happening here in these texts is Christ is walking along with his disciples and he's trying to bend everything in their thinking towards looking at him. And quite often in a very different way than they would have thought of previously. And so here we come to this particular passage in Mark chapter seven. And Jesus has an unusually strong reaction to the Pharisees here, which we'll talk about in a minute. But he's helping the Pharisees and his disciples in us to be aware of hypocrisy. This word in the Greek means to be an actor or to wear a mask or to pretend to be something that you're not. And so he has this very violent sort of explosive reaction to hypocrisy. And the three things that I want to really observe today is, one, I want us to just look at the conflict itself so we understand what's happening. Two, I want to observe Jesus' reaction to the conflict. And then third, I want to just make some observations, two observations, just about Jesus First, let's look at the conflict. Verse chapter seven, verse one through five, the disciples are eating and they're eating with unclean hands. And some scribes and Pharisees have come from Jerusalem and they see this happening. And what they saw was Jesus violating what's called here in the text, the tradition of the elders or what sometimes is referred to as the oral law. Uh, These were not laws given by God, but traditions or commandments that grew up around the Torah or the written law. So the idea here is the Torah has a number of things that God has said. And then the people are asking a very common question. Well, okay, if I'm supposed to uh, obey the Sabbath, what does that really mean? How would I actually do that? If I'm supposed to have these particular Jewish festivals or feasts like Passover, well, that's great, but how do I do that? And what began as a, was probably helpful is to say, well, let's sort of fill in the gaps. Let's put some ideas in there that will help somebody know what it means to do or honor or act like a certain way. And that's why the, this idea, sometimes you'll hear it referred to as the fence of the law. It, it kind of provides a barrier so you don't really uh, transgress the law. It would be like if, if there was a tree and you'd say, the law says you can only come within three feet. Well, well, the oral law would just sort of back up and say, well, let's not get within five feet just to make sure we don't 
transgress the law. So we have the fence of the law or this oral law or what is referred to here as the tradition of the elders. And although it started out probably as an honest effort to help people, it quickly led into some uh, pretty unusual absurdities like this. Considering the Sabbath, it was unlawful to look into a mirror on the Sabbath. If you look into a mirror and you see a gray hair, you might be uh, wanting to pluck that gray hair out and that would be working. And so you couldn't look into a mirror. Not not that that would apply to anybody here, but I mean, some older people might have that application Two, you couldn't wear your false teeth because if your false teeth fell out, then you'd have this inclination to pick them up and then that would be working. So that was one of the traditions of the elders. You couldn't carry a handkerchief, but you could wear one. Finally, there was some date, some debate on whether a man, if he had a wooden leg and his house was caught on fire, could he actually carry his leg out of the house without it being considered work? Well, even a bigger concern than the Sabbath was the idea of cleanliness. If you wrote down the oral law, which it did get written down, the, the idea of cleanliness or ritual purity would take up 200 pages. So as a Jew, you'd have these 200 pages of, of oral law to see to make sure you're really clean. And that's what the Pharisees here are so upset about. This isn't the idea of personal hygiene, like you might tell your student to wash their hands before they come to the dinner. It's this idea of separation where we're trying to cleanse our hands of the world and we're separating ourselves from the world and we're holy and distinct. Now, if you look back in Exodus chapter 30, that actually did. That was actual an actual requirement, but it was a requirement for the priests as they entered into the temple and approached the altar. They had to wash themselves ritually. And so it was a very important picture for the people to see the people that are coming forward to the altar. They're not pure. God alone is pure. And so they go through this cleansing. And what happened over time is the Pharisees or the elders begin to say, well, what's good for the priests must be good for everybody. And not just everybody, cups, pitchers and kettles. And the sentiment was strong to obey the oral law. Listen to these two quotes by Jewish rabbis. Whoever eats bread without previously washing the hands, it's as though he had laid with a harlot. Another, it is a greater offense to teach anything contrary to the voice of the rabbis than to contradict Scripture itself. And, you know, when I thought about this, you you look at those quotes or you look at those laws and and your first reaction is kind of to shake your head and say, that's ridiculous. I mean, who would ever think of such a thing? And although it does sound ridiculous, my guess is some of us and, and maybe quite a few of us appreciate this additional detail to the law. We think it's attractive because it gives a preciseness. It gives a sort of a clean idea of what's right and what's wrong. And there's no gray area. It's just so clean and so precise that there's something attractive about that. Everything's categorized. Every movement is cleanly laid out. You know exactly what you're doing, if you're doing it right or if you're doing it wrong. And there's a couple of obvious problems with this. One, Jesus states it in the text. 
that these oral laws or traditions began to build up to the degree that they were equal with Scripture. The second thing is that they almost began to overrule and in some cases did overrule the written law. The written law in the Ten Commandments was to honor your father and mother. And the idea here uh, that um, Jesus is giving his example to the Pharisees is that as a person, you would have lots of property or you'd have lots of money. And you would say, well, when I die, I'm going to dedicate this money to the Lord. I'm going to make a vow that this goes to the Lord. And what sometimes would happen would be a parent would become impoverished and they would come to their son and say, can you help me out? And the son would say, well, see all this stuff that I'm using, I'm going to dedicate that to the Lord so I can't help you out anymore. And so what happened was this oral tradition about giving gifts to the Lord actually superseded the actual part of the Ten Commandments about honoring your father and mother. And Jesus really explodes against this. So one problem is the traditions that move into equal positions or they actually take over the law. Another problem with these is they tended to produce a feeling of superiority. You know, these oral laws were human commands and humans command what humans can do. And so they begin to follow after these things. And then there becomes, well, I'm getting a lot of these things done. And I'm a lot better off and I'm a lot better than that person. What's the story that Jesus tells that helps us understand that? You remember the Pharisee and the tax collector? The Pharisee is up front and he's having this big, long, open prayer. And he's saying, well, I'm so great. I'm so glad I'm not like one of these, like these tax collectors. Because I fast twice a week and I tithe. I can look at these laws and say, well, I'm doing it. And that gives me hope that I'm a really good person. And then Jesus points out the tax collector who's at some distance and he's beating his breast. And he's just pleading for mercy from God. And he turns to his disciples and says, the tax collector is the one who goes home justified. So one of the problems with traditions Jesus isn't against traditions as a whole. Traditions are fine. It's when the traditions well themselves up to they're actually part of the law. You've got to keep this in order to be keeping the law. And his problem here is that this feeling of superiority actually negates the purpose of the law. What's the purpose of the law? The laws given in the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, sometimes it's referred to. What is its purpose? Is it to keep us in line? Paul says this in Romans chapter three. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight, in God's sight, by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. You see what the purpose of the law is to do is to point to God's holiness and to point to your unrighteousness, to, to point to him as glorious and to point to, to you as empty or lost. And when you come up against the law, the law is supposed to tell you, I can't make this happen all the time. I need some help. I need something from the outside to help me. 
And the promise of that outside help is Jesus Christ. And so the law isn't supposed to make you feel superior. It's supposed to eliminate superiority. And bring in people who are servants and saying, see, I'm not worthy. Bring in people who would act like this tax collector did and not like the Pharisee. Well, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they have this air of superiority. And with their statement in verse five, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? Why are they not? The word walk here means occupied. Why are they not occupied? Why, why is their why is their vision not totally looking at the tradition of the elders? And this really lights a fire in Jesus. And I asked myself this question. Why, why such a an explosive reaction? I mean, he's run into these people before he's, he runs into them again. But here you, you'll notice there's a, a particularly strong reaction to this. You see, what's happening is the Pharisees are trying to get the disciples to be occupied by men. And what has Jesus been doing the whole time that we've been studying Mark? He's been trying to get their sights set on himself. And so when you have in Mark chapter four, the the crossing of the sea and the great storm, what's the whole purpose of the storm for the disciples to turn and look at Jesus? That's the whole purpose of it. And when in chapter five, they meet Jairus and the bleeding woman. And remember, the bleeding woman, she's a model for faith. Forget all of her past. Forget her uncleanliness. She's going to make it through the crowd. And who is she going to make it to? She's going to make it to Jesus. And he points to this woman as to the disciples and say, we want to make her the model. You're going to forget everything around you and you're going to come to me. And in the midst of that, remember, somebody comes to Jairus and whispers to Jesus while he's ministering to this woman. He says to Jairus, somebody comes from the house of Jairus and says, don't bother the teacher anymore. Your daughter's dead. And he turns to Jairus. He overhears this. And what does he say? Believe, have faith in me, look at me, keep occupied with me. That's what he's saying in Mark chapter four. That's what he's saying in Mark chapter five. That's what the whole Bible is saying. All of creation is pointing to one spot, and that spot is the person of Jesus Christ. You remember in Luke chapter chapter 24, the disciples are on the way to to the uh, city called Emmaus. And Jesus sort of comes in sort of incognito in this little discussion that they're having along the road. And they don't see Jesus. Until what happens? He begins to explain to them. Using all that the prophets and the law had talked about Jesus concerning himself. He'd gone back and he'd taken the Old Testament and said, Everything back here has been pointing to me. And then he sits down at a table. He breaks some bread and their eyes are open and they say, we see him. So the reason Jesus is so fired up when the Pharisees come is he's trying to take the the disciples view and say, no, look at us. Look at our traditions. We're the most important thing. And Jesus has been spending all of his time saying, disciples, please, if you don't do anything else, Keep your eyes on me and me alone. And so we're looking at Jesus's response to this. 
in chapter six. And he said to them, he quotes an Old Testament passage, Isaiah. Well, did Isaiah prophesy to you hypocrites right out of the box here? The Pharisees come and maybe they feel like they're going to try to sneak one in on Jesus. And he looks at him and he goes, hypocrites. You know, my guess is a lot of us don't have that kind of picture of Jesus. Oh, golly, you sort of misunderstood a couple of things. So let me put my arm around you and here. Gee, gee, let me. That's not that's not how he is all the time. He looks right into their soul and he says, hypocrites, you actors, you have on masks and I can see right through the mask. And look what he says. He makes this quote from Isaiah 29. The people honor me with their lips. They give lip service. Maybe you can remember if you were a teenager. Maybe if you're a parent of a teenager. You give lip service at some points to your parents. They say something and you say back what they want to hear. But your parent knows. I, I just have his lips, but I don't have his heart yet. That's what I'm shooting for. They honor me with their lips. And this word lip in the Greek sometimes refers to the shoreline. They're honoring me at the edges of their life, at the shore. But at the core, I don't have them. Their heart is far from me. And that's what Jesus is after is a heart. We'll talk about that more in a couple of weeks. When I thought about this idea, you know, you have these different pictures and first Corinthians 13 came to mind. You remember in Corinth that they were very focused on the external. In fact, in chapter one, the first thing Paul, he's writing this letter back to the city, Corinth. The first thing he has to talk about is we're not following Paul. We're not following Peter. We're not following Apostle uh, Apollos. We're not concerned about the shore. We're concerned about the core. And they're they're trying to divide up into camps based on who their best and favorite preacher is. And then in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says this, and you'll be familiar with it. If you speak in the tongues of men or angels. Well, now that's pretty impressive. Lots of people, if you're handing that out, well, I'll take a little dose of that. Or if you have prophetic prophetic powers and you uh, you can understand all mysteries and have all knowledge. If you can move mountains. If you give away all that you own and you surrender yourself to the flame, what does Paul say? If you sweep all of those things together, what are they worth without love? Without being right at the core, what does Paul say? They're worth nothing. You see, if you're not right at the core, you can have a lot of things on the shore right. And you can think those are it. But you're missing the core. And Christ is saying, don't miss the core by standing along the shoreline. By being so focused on the traditions of men that you miss what the traditions are supposed to be pointing to. And that's myself. And then he has this sort of this explosive reaction, he quotes, and then here's his assessment. And he says it three times in six verses. So it's pretty important that we pick this up. Look in verse eight. 
This is what they're doing. They're leaving the commandment of God. That means the Old Testament. They don't have the New Testament at this point. They're leaving the scriptures. They're letting go and they're seizing or they're holding tightly onto the traditions of men. Verse nine, they're rejecting. This word means to displace. They're displacing the Old Testament and what they're putting in its place is their own traditions. Verse 13, they're making void. They're they're hollowing out the word of God so they can insert something in to that hollowed spot. And they're inserting their traditions They're at the core. Do You see that picture? The very core is me, my traditions. That's what I'm holding on to. And I ask myself again, so so Christ is passionate and he's explosive about this because there's an exchange at the core. And I think he's he's passionate to the Pharisees. I think he really wants the Pharisees to see, but he really wants his disciples to pick up on this. He doesn't want them to fall into this camp. And I think he's so adamant about it because falling into this camp, number one, actually is very attractive. It's very easy to move into this camp. You really don't have to work very hard to find yourself liking this idea. And two, there's a great deal at stake. The the idea of displacement, you know it, you fill up a bucket of water, it's full to the very top, and then if you put your hand in it, what happens to some of the water? It gets displaced, it gets removed. And that's what's happening here. And this displacement, when did this displacement begin in the Bible? Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve moved in and they displaced God and said, no, we need to be part of the equation. And it's attractive because when we hollow out the word of God and we insert our own word. When we hollow out the word of God and we insert what our hearts tell us. When we hollow out the word of God and insert our own experiences. Who moves into the spotlight? We do. We move ourselves into the center. And when that happens, it's not long before we're lost in self-reflection and navel-gazing. And like Narcissus, we begin to stare at ourselves. And what happens? We fall in love with ourselves. We begin to worship ourselves. And everybody wants to be worshipped. And so it's so attractive to move in that direction to say, well, you know, the word of God's fine on the edge, but the core is what my heart tells me or my experiences or my traditions. What's at stake is worship. Verse seven. I think this might be the central part of the whole passage in vain, in Emptiness in fruitlessness. If you're inserted yourself, you're worshiping in vain. Moses leads the people of uh, the Hebrews out of Egypt. For what purpose? Freedom? No. 
He goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go so that they can what? Worship. That's the whole idea. The people that are rescued out of darkness and brought into light are brought there for a purpose, not their own purpose, not their own freedom. That happens in some ways, but the purpose is to worship God. Sinners that are saved by grace are saved for a purpose. And you know what I'm afraid of? I'm afraid that the purpose we've inserted ourselves I'm saved so I can be free and do what I want. I'm saved so I can go to heaven. I'm saved so I can be reunited with my relatives. I'm saved so that I can have an eternal game of good golf or fishing. I get something out of this. And that's not the purpose. You see why Jesus is so worked up about it? The purpose of being saved is to look at me. Everything's looking at me. And if you miss that, then you miss the whole thing. And it's so easy for us. And the older you get in the faith, maybe the easier it becomes to insert your traditions and hold those up as if that's the Word of God. And it's not. I want to finally just notice two things about Jesus. You notice in verse six, this little phrase, it is written. This is a phrase that Christ says over and over and over again. He's constantly coming across a situation and he evaluates the situation by how. That's that's not good English, is it? How does he evaluate the situation? He comes into a situation and he's trying to sort of take stock of it. He's trying to respond to situations. And he almost always responds by saying, first, it is written. Jesus is in the one of the greatest points of temptation. He's in the desert. And Satan himself shows up in some form and begins to tempt him. And what does Jesus say? Golly, I better not do that. He says, it is written. And he says this over and over and over again. He comes to the temple and he's clearing out the temple. People have inserted themselves into the temple. And he says, I'm going to make this house. This house is meant to be a house of prayer. That's a quote. That's a quote from Jeremiah chapter 29. He comes into a situation and how does he assess the situation? He relies on the scriptures to show him what to say. He comes to the garden. The soldiers come. They're beginning to arrest Jesus and Peter pulls out the sword, remember? And he cuts off the servant's ear. What, what do you say at a time like that? Put your sword back in its place, Peter. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Don't you think I can't call my father who, who at once will, will disperse more than 12 legions of angels? How would the scriptures be fulfilled? He, he sees himself. Always through the light 
of the Old Testament of the scriptures. Jesus, in probably one of his most famous statements on the cross, what comes out of you in a situation like that? You know what comes out of Christ? Scripture. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a quote from Psalm 22. So Jesus is constantly entering into the world and he's assessing the situations in light of what the scriptures has taught him. Not in light of his feelings. Not in light of his experiences. Not in light of his traditions. In light of the scriptures. The thing this this tells us about Jesus is he has an extremely high view of the scriptures. Everything he's saying, he's pointing back to the scriptures. And so we know from Jesus, he has an extremely high view of the scriptures. But you'll notice this today pretty frequently. And maybe some people sitting here, they'll say something like this. I'm all for Jesus. Sign me up. The Bible? Well, you know, some parts of the Bible I like, some parts I don't like. So I'll just sort of decide about that. But I'm still going to take Jesus. You can't take Jesus without taking the Bible. That's not an option. And so we're basing all of our life on the Scripture. It's our firm foundation. And so one of the things that we see is Jesus has a high view of Scripture. And the other thing that we see is he has a high view of himself. What's Jesus doing here? What's really going to frustrate the Pharisees? What's going to frustrate the Pharisees is that Jesus, in this little conversation, is putting himself up and against and over all of the traditions. He alone gets to decide how to interpret the Scriptures. Nobody else. Everybody just needs to now turn all of their focus off of their traditions and on to Christ alone. That's what he's saying here to his disciples. Disciples, I know you've grown up with this, but I'm trying to get your eyes focused on me. And he has an extremely high view of himself. He's putting himself up against and perhaps to affirm your traditions, but he's also putting himself over your traditions. So if your traditions are not helping people see Christ, then he's over that. He's putting himself up against how your heart feels. And he's putting himself over how your heart feels. He's putting himself up against your experiences and he's putting himself over your experiences. He gets to regulate what happens. He's at the core, not you, not your traditions, not your heart, not your experiences. As I thought about this at the end, I felt like if people are paying attention at all, they're going to feel like hypocrites. It's just not going to be very hard to find something in your life where you've you've kind of moved that in at the center. And when you've moved that in, you've kind of moved yourself right into the center. And then I'm going to ask you now to come forward and take of the body and the blood of Christ. How can we as hypocrites come forward? 
Mark chapter 2. Jesus makes an incredibly and unprecedented claim. He has a very high view of himself. The man that's paralyzed comes in and sits before him. And what does Christ say? I can forgive your sins. See, I have that power. Your traditions aren't going to get you there. Nothing else is going to. The law is not going to get you there. I'm going to take you the whole way. And so he looks at us. He looks at Paul and he looks at you. And he says, look, I know you're a hypocrite. I know you're moving yourself into the spotlight. But I can forgive that. Come. Focus all of your attention now on me. Let go of that and seize Christ. Take all of your attention off the shore and come to the core. You can come. But you cannot come on your own accord. You must come because of Christ. He comes and He says, I'm making this new covenant. And it's costly. So I don't want you to focus on anything else but me. Because it's going to cost me my blood. And it's going to cost me my body. But he gives us this as a visual reminder that we can't make it up here on our own. It comes at a high cost. So as the elders come forward, and we just have a a few minutes before you come up, just take a moment just between you and the Lord and just acknowledge what he's brought to your mind. Oh, God, I, I know I'm I'm hypocritical in this way. I, I've I've let this tradition, I, I've let my heart, I've let my experience be right at the core. I've, I, I keep looking at that. I keep wanting to put myself in the center of the spotlight. And today I'm convicted about that. And I pray for your forgiveness. And may coming forward. Be the first of many steps of keeping your eyes focused on Him alone. The music will play and you come as your heart is prepared.